Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello, I'm John Elledge, and this is Skylines, the Cinematic Podcast. This is going to be another one of those uh, those two part episodes where we have you know two different interviews. We try wherever possible to to kind of match up the interviews thematically in some way. You know, sometimes we we uh, maybe talk maybe they'll both be about culture, or sometimes they'll both be about politics. Sometimes they'll both be about different aspects of the same city. This is one of those times where I mean there is a commonality between them. They are both things that I don't really understand and probably should. So that's going to be our theme. They're both kind of vaguely business related, but only a little bit. It's kind of maybe this sort of interaction of business and government, but then that's almost everything we ever do around here. So that's probably not very helpful. So our overwhelming theme this week is things John doesn't understand and feels like he probably should. Anyway, first up, we are going to talk to uh, the Centre for Cities, now normal RC experts lot, where we're going to talk about enterprise zones. And you will hear me live discovering what an enterprise zone is. Then after that, we are going to go to London's very uh, fine city hall, which is the quite oddly shaped building on the South Bank, where I'm going to meet with a guy called Fia Blackwell, who's London's chief digital officer. And I'm going to find out what a chief digital officer does. So it's kind of nice. You'll be you'll be learning along with me as I find out what it is I'm talking about this week. So here we go. So once again, or in fact, in some ways still, because this is immediately after we recorded the last of these segments, here at the offices of the Centre for Cities in London Bridge with uh, Andrew Carter, the head honcho, to talk about, well, this time we're going to talk about enterprise zones. We are, John, we are. And I'm going to own up up front. This is one of those things I don't know very much about. I have a vague sense of guilt that I should know more about it, but I'm going to try and muddle my way through and sound like someone who vaguely knows what they're talking about. So, so obviously, obviously I know, but for the benefit of the listeners, perhaps you could tell us what's an enterprise zone? Yeah, so let's take you back in time. If, if you go back all the way to the 1980s, in fact, the very early 1980s, the, the enterprise zones was an idea that was actually part of the Thatcher government and it was part of her response to urban deprivation and urban decline, which was everywhere in a sense in the early 1980s. And very simply, it was you draw a big 
circle or boundary around a certain area and then essentially you offer a bunch of incentives on planning or tax incentives you know you can get planning more easily or you get rebates on your business rates or capital allowances on any investment that you make on plant and machinery as long as you're in that patch so the enterprise zone in the london docklands was a kind of start right, of the okay. process so the ldc had the enterprise zone. if you go to the isle of dogs that was an enterprise zone if you go up to to liverpool and think about where liverpool one is or the kind of albert dock that area was an enterprise zone there were a dozen or so spread across the country looking at um you know trying to encourage investment back into those areas and we had a bunch of them in the 1980s the reason we're talking about them was because people were may or may not remember in 2011, the budget of 2011, the then Chancellor, George Osborne, said we're going to reintroduce enterprise zones. And he said that we're going to be, there were going to be 24 that were going to be created, again, spread across the country. And they became operational in 2012. And so what we've done very recently is just look at the jobs performance of those 24 uh, enterprise zones from 2012 when they became operational through to 2017 uh, when the latest data is available. So we've got five years of data okay. uh, on what's been going on in those places. So we're going to get on to the data. Before we do that, though, I just sort of want to ask, what's the benefit of like drawing a line around somewhere and saying this is an enterprise zone as opposed to giving these exciting powers or whatever to like, you know, everywhere? Well, that is a very, a very good question. And when we get into the detail of it, what you will see is there are quite significant problems uh, and challenges around drawing very, very tight boundaries. And then you allow something, something to happen in the area within the boundary and not to happen outside of the boundary. But I suppose in, 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 in the, kind of the concept was, you know, these were meant to be the most difficult, declined, deprived areas and really they were trying to kind of level up. So you've got more benefits if you're a business, if you located in these places, because essentially many of them had very, very few businesses in them. So they were partly a kind of signaling uh, and a way of prioritizing investment in one place rather than maybe necessarily in another place. So that's the kind of broad idea of it. You know, they're used in various ways across different countries, but that was really okay. the, um, the emphasis or the kind of originality of it. So how many jobs were these 24 new enterprise zones expected to create? So when the announcement was made in 2012, the Treasury said that by 2015, so that was from 2012 to 2015, they said that 54,000 jobs would be created uh, in the enterprise zones by 2015. Okay, it's quite a lot of jobs. It's quite a lot of jobs. How many jobs were actually created? So remember, we're, now, we're looking from 2012 through to 2017. So we've added on. So it's a longer uh, period. We've added on an extra you, two years. You would expect more than 54,000 jobs. We would expect uh, more. Uh, the actual number, the net number, is 17,500. Right. Now, I'm not the Lucasian Chair of Mathematics. But as I understand it, 17,500 is fewer than 54,000? It is quite significantly fewer than, uh, than 54,000, yes indeed. So, so they've not worked as well as we would hope? They've not worked as well as the Treasury suggested that they might work uh, at the time. Okay, so what, what are these jobs? Are they good jobs? So the first thing is you look at this, so the number is, is much smaller. 
what you then find is an overwhelming majority, sort of 12,000, as it were, uh, of those 17,000 are classified as kind of low-skilled local services jobs. So right. they're, they're typically jobs that are primarily serving the locality in which they're in. They tend to be non-tradable in the kind of jargon, you know, so they're not trading outside of their locality or certainly they're not exporting. Local services jobs typically tend to be lower waged, lower productivity. So crudely, you know, all jobs are kind of good in some respect. But if you were rating, you know, the types of jobs that you would be hoping that public policy was targeting, i.e. exporting jobs, mm. high-waged, high-skilled, these are essentially the very opposite of those sorts of things. Yeah, as regular listeners to this segment will know, like it's those kind of exporting jobs that actually add to a city's prosperity when you're not just kind of selling to yourself, you are sort of bringing money in from outside the area. You're selling to somewhere, to somewhere else, mm. whether, as you say, it's, you know, uh, some other part of the country or ideally to another country it's those sorts of those sorts of jobs that really drive both the wealth um, of that area directly and indirectly because they have multiplier effects on you know on other jobs in the place but also at the nation level as well the more exported jobs we've got the more high skilled jobs that places have got typically the the more prosperous and wealthy that they are okay so why hasn't this worked as hoped is it the state of the general economy? Is there something wrong with the policy? What's what, What's your read as to why this has not gone as the Treasury was saying? Well, I think in some respects, you know, it's entirely predictable in a sense, because not least when you look at the data from the previous lot of enterprise zones, you get very similar sort of findings in a sense, not as many jobs created. They're not as, as good as, as they were. And part of the point is, you know, because they, a lot of these, these jobs are lower skilled, i.e. and local, non-traded, they by very definition are essentially, they are moving from one place to the next. Mm. So the third kind of critique would be not as many jobs created, that's the first one. Secondly, most of them are low skilled. The third element is by definition, they are essentially moves from outside of the boundary into the boundary. Right. So they were located somewhere else, more often than not, within the locality, within the kind of broader locality where the enterprise zone is designated. They essentially hop across from outside and to inside the, the boundary in order to take advantage of the benefits and the offers on it. So it's a kind of, you know, it's a, it's a 34%, you know, about a third of them we can we feel fairly confident is just simply displacement, as I would refer them, i.e. they come from one place to another. So there's net new, nothing at all. Um, but it's probably closer to 50% in some respects. And it's primarily because if you think about what enterprise zones are doing by definition, you know, they're trying to create the set of conditions in a locality, but they're primarily offering something in relation to price. And what we know actually about the businesses and the activity that, you know, is most innovative, highly skilled, exporting jobs, they're often found in places where land or property and labor is most expensive. Mm. In a sense, they are, they are less interested in cheap premises or cheap land. It's because of what they're actually looking for, which is firms like themselves, so they can exchange ideas and people, high skilled people, essentially that they can attract in to be workers in those places. By definition, areas that qualify as enterprise zones often lack both of those attributes. So offering somewhere that's relatively cheap to a firm that's really interested in talent and peers 
unsurprisingly, is not particularly mm. attractive. Well, this is going to be my question. Is like you said that one of the first of these was the LDDC, the London Docklands Development Corporation, which regenerated a huge swathe of East London, which is now, you know, London's second financial centre and therefore one of the world's leading financial centres. That's clearly been incredibly effective. Yes. So why did that... Are you saying that worked not because it was an enterprise zone, but because... Firms just really wanted somewhere new to base themselves in. Exactly. I mean, in a sense, the enterprise zone designation in the Docklands is it's, it's largely a kind of footnote to the success of Canary Wharf and to the success right. of Docklands more generally. You know, if you think about what was going on in the 1980s, you know, you, you had, and actually once you get into the 1980s in substantial, a massive expansion of city-related activity a city of London at the time that was essentially deliberately constraining supply of prime property and all the rest. Remember, no towers back in the 1980s, except for the NatWest, um, in a sense, so that you had an increasing amount of demand and these businesses were modernizing. They needed modern businesses, uh, modern properties. And so this outlet appeared that was prepared to build loads of towers, as it were, modern uh, office space, Unsurprisingly, as that demand grew, it went it went down to and into the Canary Wharf, further enabled by significant public investment, firstly in transport through the DLR, although that was quickly overwhelmed in terms of numbers, and then obviously uh, the extension and expansion of the Jubilee Line, both of which were much more significant in underpinning the kind of long-run success of the Docklands versus fairly arbitrary small amounts of you know monies off for firms when you think about the kind of nature of the firms that ended up in the Docklands, business rates uh, write-offs to the, you know, for a couple of hundred thousand is neither here nor there. Let's, let's sort of bring this back to the present and indeed the, the future. What, what can be done with these enterprise zones? Is there a way of kind of making it a better policy in future or do you think the whole thing is sort of slightly wrong-headed and we should quietly forget about it? Well, so I think there's a couple of, so, so I think, you know, if you're going to do enterprise zones as a policy, they're probably, you know, our work and other work says put them in, you know, close to city centres rather than out in the middle of nowhere. So the city centres ones do better than those out in the middle of nowhere that are kind of trying to redevelop a kind of out of town locations. If you're going to do enterprise zones, that's probably the thing. But it does raise a more particular question is these kind of small area based policies where you're artificially ring fencing smallish areas and then offering incentives or activities but that are particularly focused on a certain type of firm very cost sensitive firms ultimately you know i don't think it's a good use of public policy money or time and effort so we would be somewhat skeptical about a continuation of these kind of very narrowly defined area-based initiatives enterprise zones whatever you want to call them in a sense they aren't really doing what we want them to do Okay, well, for all the uncertainty in British politics at the moment, I think it's fairly clear that George Osborne will not be going back to the Treasury anytime soon. He might be going to the IMF. That would be... <laughs> I mean, like, is he really going to have time with his other eight jobs? But we'll, we'll see. Anyway, I, I, perhaps uh, the next chance that we'll, we'll quietly forget about these. We shall see. Andrew, thank you very much. A pleasure. Cheers, John. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. So I am here on the eighth floor of London's City Hall. London's living room, as it likes to call itself, for reasons I've never quite got to the bottom of. It's probably the hottest day of the year. I just it's walked, melting. It's horrible out. I just walked two miles in 35 degree heat, and it's kind of a miracle I made it at all. But, but it was all worth it to speak to this man here, because I'm very lucky this week to be joined by London's Chief Digital Officer, Theo Blackwell. Hello. Hello. Hi. Pleasure to join you. How are you doing today? Are you enjoying the heat wave? It is pretty hot out. And I uh, hope the trains work, otherwise it's a very long cycle back to Crystal Palace. Crystal Palace, that's Southern Rail, isn't it? You'll be fine. Southern Rail is famously... Um, Reliable. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Absolutely. Although great news from all the transport. As we, as we speak, Chris Grayling is no longer Transport Secretary, so that's... That's the one upside in this in this fantastic political age we're living in. Anyway, forgive me, I'm a bit delirious with the heat. We are going to talk about. Well, let's start with let's start with the sort of the, the broadest of broad questions. What what's a chief digital officer? What do you what do you do exactly? <laughs> well, chief digital officer for London. Well, it, the post was set up by Sadiq Khan in his manifesto in 2016. It's actually part of uh, the other fellow's manifesto as well. It's lobbied for by both public sector, local councils, and the tech sector, to solve a problem in London, which was our various bits of the public sector, whether it's boroughs or the many NHS trusts, TfL, Met Police, didn't seem to join up when it came to the use of technology and data sharing. And the problem that lies behind that is that it makes it more difficult for London to mobilise this vast and growing tech community on our doorstep. So the real challenge behind my post is how do we use technology and data to solve London's big challenges? Okay, so the obvious next question there is what kind of challenges are we talking about here and what kind of data have we got that might help us solve it? Let's do that first. So in terms of the problems, problems that we want solving, they are set out very clearly uh, by the mayor, we want to become a zero carbon city by 2050 and have the best air quality of any city in the world. We want to change London's transport mix and that's got a very ambitious target attached to it. By 2041, 80% of journeys by walking 
cycling or public transport. It's a real, real shift in how people... Where, where are we now? We are quite far away from that at the moment. Can you put We've a seen, rough number on it? I, I don't have the okay, I don't, I'll put a rough, rough number on well, it. So I mean, where they're just blurting out where are we now, having said I was delirious from that, <laughs> it's probably, probably not great. But, yeah, um, so the point being, these, these are the big objectives for London. The skills also changing the way the economy works to make it uh, tackle inequality. There are very sort of strong objectives emanating from this building. And our job is to use uh, technology. Well, it, it, to a certain extent, technology will help solve some of these problems. We won't be able to solve the challenge of poor air quality in London without the use of sensors, without the use of data sharing, without giving people new choices on how they might go about their daily lives or go to work or develop policies or regulations to stop polluters. So a good example of that actually is the ultra low emission zone. The fact that we have better sensors and a better understanding of air quality enables us to, to develop new policy solutions. We'll put forward policy solutions that perhaps before people might not have countenanced. So technology will play an increasing role in our city in solving city's problems as our population grows. And we estimate by the middle of the century another two million people will be living in London. So these big challenges around air quality and congestion, as well as social challenges around skills and community safety, all of these I think technology will play a part in solving. So where is this data coming from? Like what kind of, I mean, at, at the beginning of your, your sort of spiel there, you kind of like said the data from TfL or the Metropolitan Police or whatever. Is that the kind of stuff we are talking about? The data that is already yeah, data is, inside the public yeah, sector but so, not joined so, up. So data is basically everywhere in our city. In fact, our city government is sort of founded on data gathering, if you went back centuries. Its ability to understand what's going on. And today, through the way in which we approach data and collect data through things like the London Data Store, which has been around for about nine or ten years, through TfL's Unified API, which is part of its open data platform, we are un able to understand far more about how the city works. Not only that, we publish a lot of our data openly so that developers can develop products on the back of that. So TfL's data flow about how trains and buses are moving around London provides the backbone to applications like City Mapper that are used by Londoners every day. So our ability to publish that data is really important. But what is, I think, what, what's even more important in a sense is that what beyond open data, we also have better ability to share data that was previously considered non-open or private. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean directly personal information to you or me, but data that has uh, an element of privacy attached to yeah. it. And our ability to share data appropriately privately gives us deeper insights into people's lived experience, especially public services. Well, this is going to be my next question, is like where, where privacy comes into this. Because yeah. obviously the past year or so, we've seen the introduction of the European GDPR regulations, which have been fun for all the family. Half the listeners just switched off when I said those letters. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there are not only sort of ethical implications now to kind of like sharing data between organisations, there are actually legal implications. You can get in quite a lot of trouble right. 
if you, you send personal data from one organization to another. So is that the kind of data we're talking about here? Or are we talking about sort of, I mean, like there's a difference between a, a data on a bus and data on a person, yeah. I guess is the point. Yeah, yeah data is a really big topic. And there are, we would distinguish between various types of data. Data that is open and shareable, like the number of trees in your borough or <laughs> how many trains are moving down the circle line is data which is open and publishable. There is also obviously data about people's use of services, data that can identify the individual or their actions or characteristics that carry, carries with it protections under the law. Protections, if I can pick you up, that did exist before with the Data Protection Act, um, of course, because we had this embedded in, in uh, UK and European law. The next step, the evolution of that was GDPR. And I think the interesting thing about the about London as a European city is that, uh, and subject to the laws that have been developed there and influenced, obviously, in their development by us, is that we have quite a strong grounding now for discussions around privacy and the protections of the individual, the concept of privacy by design when a technology is being created, new technology is being created, so this enables us to go forward with a little bit more confidence when we use when we think about the use of sensors and and data sharing arising from that than perhaps some of the cities that have tried new smart technologies for example in America without those foundations of privacy. So we feel that London has this 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 mix between having a very innovative global tech hub plus the right framework so that uh, citizens can feel safe or safer about the sharing of their data when it is allowed. So when we were talking about ways in which we can use this stuff, um, you were talking a lot about air pollution. That's obviously a, a, mm-hmm. a, a big issue for, for London at the moment. Can you kind of like sort of drill down into that a little bit and kind of explain like what, what numbers might we have that if we put them together and thought about them in the right way, we could use to address this, this problem? I think the, what, what data enables you to do is think about new ways of tackling a problem. And it also arms not just policymakers, but citizens and new ways of doing things. So, for example, data on streets that polluting cars drive down as opposed to streets that polluting cars don't drive down can give you as a pedestrian or a cyclist, a greater sense of it's better to walk here than there. It can change individual behaviour. It can also help policymakers develop, as I say, more effective solutions to poor air quality. So the ULES, the ultra low emission zone, effectively works from cameras and data sharing because it's able to identify cars, 24-7 going into the city that are polluting. So this is effectively based on technology, not necessarily new technology, but this could only happen if we moved forward with our understanding around data sharing and deployed uh, technologies to tackle a particular problem. So ULES is probably quite a good example of that, but our ability to harness the data of London manifests itself in different ways. The tube, for example, we are able to aggregate the 
travel patterns of people through following Wi-Fi signals as people pass in and out of stations in order to get a, get a better sense of how people are traveling around the tube network. At the moment, we only know when people tap in and when people tap out. We don't know how they get from King's Cross to Waterloo, particularly a challenging journey for some. And that gives us a sense of how congested areas can be, how we can li- at what times of day, and what steps do we need to take to limit that? You know, is it more trains or are there ways in which, you know, inside the tube stations, you know, tunnels, traffic needs to be managed, you know, as people move around particular stations. Mm. And so I think those kind of insights help make the actual passenger journey in a very crowded city slightly better. And so data and how we gather that is really, really important. You wouldn't normally find that information out apart from having someone sitting there with a clipboard. And I just don't think in a modern transport system, clipboards are the way forward. I mean, no, they're not, they're not ideal, uh, particularly, <laughs> yeah. So, but what, what kind of strikes me about that is data is sort of step one. Yeah. It's only the first link in the chain, like what you were talking about with like, I'm trying to get, encourage walkers or cyclists off, off the polluted streets and say, hey, there's a much nicer street over here, why don't mm-hmm. you do that? You still need someone to kind of apply that. You need someone to basically turn the numbers into a map in this case. Right. Or you need City Mapper to come along and actually sort of take the numbers that TFL generates yeah. and say, you know, this is actually there's all sorts of ways to do this journey. Like, who who is who is meant to be doing the next stages in this chain? Do you do you imagine it to be public authorities or private companies or a mix? Well, or? we looked we looked at who was using London's data store, and London's data store is about eight hundred data sets of publicly available information, usually sort of cuts of big government data sets that apply to the entire country, but also data sets that people can upload to it. And quite a lot of our data usage comes from boroughs who are doing things like projecting the future growth of of their borough and thinking about planning and development. But about a quarter came from businesses who use it for, you know, maybe consultancy purposes and advice giving. Some use it for the visualisation of data to hold politicians to account and some is used by journalists themselves. So just unpicking this, we see that there's a kind of broader ecosystem of people who are using data in different ways. We also use data ourselves in the city to develop applications by bringing data sets together and provide services to citizens. Cultural Infrastructure Map, which we launched earlier this year, for the first time shows culture sites of culture in London. And by that, I don't mean necessarily just theatres and opera houses and things like that, but what the public perceive as culture. One of our failures in our planning process is you have a development and, you know, a theatre or a music venue at the back of an old pub gets knocked down. But that was of amazing importance to the local community. Mm -hmm. People are able to actually signify what they understand by culture in that area so it can be integrated into the planning process so by bringing all that open data together involving a third party to visualize it we're able to give people a deeper insight into their city on a more practical level we've brought together the data from the private utility companies who are normally quite bad at sharing data and brought it together in in effectively what is a a data trust called the infrastructure mapping application to be boring 
and that plots where homes and and offices are being built with projected works of uh, water, gas, electricity and connectivity companies so that when they're digging up the road, they dig it up once and that reduces their costs and it also massively reduces disruption for citizens. So all of these things coming together, we're building functionality to understand our city better and there are kind of ancillary benefits that come from that. Are, are other cities doing this kind of stuff? Like, do you have a relationship with chief data officers at other cities around the world? Well, certainly London has been seen as a leader in open data for quite a long time, especially from TfL's work to publish, you know, how trends are moving around London and its support for that community. I think we're, we're just at the, at the point because data store is now nine years old, TfL's open data is five years old in terms of the application to think about the next step. How do we bring together a greater data function? So we talk to cities like Copenhagen and Amsterdam and Helsinki, all of whom are kind of developing the same kind of ideas and thinking about ethics, uh, the ethics of sharing and the rules around that. And also how what our relationship is with the kind of wider commercial world here. Our basic premise is people who work for cities, both as chief digital officers and people who work in data, is that there's been this amazing explosion of data being used by the private sector to make commercial products and advertise things and so on. But for cities, which are basically built on data, we too have a role in in using data for civic benefit. It shouldn't just be the preserve of the private sector. So when we come to talk about smart cities, we're actually developing quite a different strain of discussion on this concept than I think is developed elsewhere in the world. Well, this was, I was going to um, briefly come on to the topic of smart cities because I'm, I'm not going to lie to you, I'm slightly cynical about the terms. Yeah, smart as you should be. Yeah, yeah. I, think, like, I think there is real stuff in there, but there's also just like a lot of basically slightly new technology gets yeah. labelled as smart. And there's also a certain amount of just marketing bullshit. Like yeah. how, how seriously do you take that? What, what is a smart city to you? Well, they're, they're kind of two, two visions of smart city. And that's all I'll say as a caveat. I came into this job and uh, there was a, you know, we made a statement just before I joined that we were going to be the smartest city in the world. And I always thought this was as a sort of adjective rather than a noun. A smart city is not something that can be achieved. It is more a question of how does your city approach technology? What is its purpose? And how can you adopt it for the means that your city is, you know, the purposes of your city? It is not, in my view, either a big technology platform that you can do interesting things with, which is sort of one model, or, you know, a kind of sort of dystopia or utopia, depending on your perspective, of, you know, sort of drones delivering you pizzas that have been made by robots, you know, this, this, <laughs> this, sort of, this sort of thing. It is, for me, a question of digital transformation and how you guide that through. So we see it more as a process than a thing, but that, I think, aligns very much to the, I think, to some sort of more, you know, values closer to us. Technology is a tool to do something. And I think elsewhere in the world, you've seen the use of technology for ends that we wouldn't 
agree with, whether it's, you know, surveillance of the population, over-surveillance of the population, happiness indexes, or even in, in Canada, you have a real debate going on about the sort of privatisation of parts of the the city in the uh, in the Sidewalks Lab project, mm-hmm. where, where it was vision, vision first, and then a kind of discussion about ethics a bit later. Yeah, so for background for anyone who isn't aware, it's, uh, it's a whole area of the waterfront in Toronto that's basically being built by Google, I think, where they will have complete ownership of, of the data. And it's a little bit... There are potentially Orwellian implications to that, getting a sort of big multinational to kind of like build and monitor its own segment of a city in some ways. That's certainly what the critics say. I think the kind of the brand smart city has taken on a new meaning in because of, you know, the Toronto experiment. And there's an assumption that when we talk about smart city, that that is that that is our objective. It's not our objective is how do we deploy data and technology to solve civic problems in an open and an accountable way under a sort of democratic uh, structure? That's that's our that's our priority here. I think uh, the term now I think is probably you know reached the end of its mm. its time usefully. I think more and more people look at the issue as digital transformation, user centred design. A lot of the things that I think we feel a little bit more comfortable here, especially in London, which is, of course, the capital of design as well as data science. Should be, should be bringing this to a, conclu- a close. So, but just as a last question, what's the most interesting thing you've found out from, from one of these data sets? What's the, tell us something surprising that you didn't know before that you know because you looked at the numbers. Well, the trains surprisingly run on time, or the underground ones. Do. Okay, that, that would surprise <laughs> some people. Once. Someone's done a great uh, application of London Underground using live data and instead of like having little graphics of trains moving around. So he's got little Pac-Man uh, <laughs> faces, which I thought was a, a great addition. The big thing really is the global picture that we know more about our city than we ever have done before. And it's just the tip of the iceberg. I think data has a tremendous potential if it's really mobilised by, you know, democratic institutions in the city and can do a great deal of good. Fundamentally, I think for the Londoner for this to take effect, we still have to prove the case. And it's usually the little practical things that make the biggest difference in people's lives. And so the challenge for all the budding data scientists and data programmers and people who can help us in that journey out there is how can we do things that actually make people's neighbourhoods nicer places? Why do estate agents' boards exist in the digital age? You know, like we can surely find a digital solution for that. Reporting fly tipping better or promoting recycling, changing the way car parking works because we've got a greater understanding of car usage and, and parking spaces. All of these things, I think the impacts will be seen on the neighbourhood level and we're just at that point where we can have that discussion. I should say for the benefit of those at home that you got very physically animated during that discussion of like things I, you can I'm, do with data, waving your arms about. Was, really yeah. Well, about. I'm actually yeah. a former local councillor, so all of these things people were very animated at me about <laughs> for 15 years. Yeah. Well, I'm sure if the vision is less advertising for Foxtons, then, then the world is going to be on board. Quite. Thank you very much. Thank you.
You've been listening to Skylines, the podcast from City Metro, the New Statesman City site. It was presented and recorded by me, John Anage, and produced by Nick Hilton. You can find Skylines every two weeks on iTunes, Acast, or whatever other app you use to get your, your podcast. And while you're there, why not leave us a nice review to, to tell other people? It, you know, it really helps people discover the show. And I'm a megalomaniac, so the more people I can get listening to this, the better, really. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. This is a Brooklyn-bound A Express train. The next stop is Dykeman Street. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas... You will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com